Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast featuring lead pastor Doug Sherman. For more information about Grace Harvest Church, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you as Pastor Doug shares this week's message. When asked the question, how do you decide who to marry, 10-year-old Alan had this to say. You got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) When asked, how can a stranger tell if two people are married, eight-year-old Derek said this, you might have to guess based upon whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. When asked, what do most people do on a date, eight-year-old Lynette said this, dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. (laughs) I love that one. Ten-year-old Martin said to the same question, on the first date, they should just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. That's insightful. Ouch. Ouch. When asked, when is it okay to kiss someone, Pam, seven years old, said this, when they're rich. (laughs) Eight-year-old Howard said, the rule goes like this, if you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. (laughs) Wow. And then when asked this question, is it better to be single or married, nine-year-old Anita said this, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. (laughs) And the last one, my favorite of all of them, is this. How would you make a marriage work? Ten-year-old Ricky said this. Tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a dump truck. (laughs) (laughs) Like a dump truck. I love it. Kids are awesome, amen? And life is sacred. All stages of human life have intrinsic value, including the pre-born, the poor, the aged, the weak, the sick, the developmentally disabled, and the oppressed. Human life has intrinsic value simply because we are created beings made in the image and likeness of God. Though we are created through an intimate act between a man and a woman, It was God who chose to bring our lives into being. He was present and active at our conception, and He knit us together in our mother's womb. Our view of life and its value flows out of our hearts. And this week, I want to start by reviewing where we've already been on the heart and the issues of the heart. My key text all these last several weeks has been Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. It'll be up here on the screen, and I want to read it to you, and then I want to just quickly remind you about the heart and its effect upon every element and aspect of our lives. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you, make level paths for your feet, and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, keep your foot from evil. 
And I shared with you in week one that there is a connection here, and the connection goes like this. The heart, the mouth, the eyes, the feet. The heart, the mouth, the eyes, the feet. And what is going on in the human heart will affect what you say from your mouth. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you spend time with people over a period of time, you'll begin to learn a lot about the condition of their heart just by what they say. I'm not saying we judge people based upon that, but you can't have both bitter water and sweet water flow from the same spring. And so the heart will betray you. You can tell me all day long you're a certain kind of person, but over time your mouth will actually reveal the true state of the heart. And then we learn that the eyes, what you look at, how you see life, your vision, your perspective on people, life, your circumstance, your job, your spouse, every element of your life and how you see it is determined by the state of your heart. And many times people are blaming what they see on a circumstance outside of themselves. They're looking at people, they're looking at life, they're looking at circumstances in a very negative way, not because those things are necessarily that bad, but because the state of their heart muddies the waters of that spring and what they see is distorted. And then lastly, the feet. And we know that the feet represent in the Bible our walk. Our walk with God, our our day-to-day journey, where we go, where we end up, our ultimate destiny. And so the state of the heart is going to determine where your feet take you. And I've seen over the years, there's a story in the book of Proverbs that speaks about a young man who went out by twilight when it was dark. He left his house when it was dark and he made his way down the street where a prostitute was. And what you see in that picture, you see in that parable, is that a man's heart under cloak of darkness will take him into dark places. His feet will carry him. And ultimately, your feet in life are going to carry you where your heart is is moved. The condition of your heart is going to determine where you walk. Amen? Now, when we get into these issues of life, And the fact that every life matters and every life is valuable, there's two words I'm going to really focus on today, and I I want you to notice them in what we we talk about. And those two, two words are sanctity and sacred. The word sanctity from the Webster's Dictionary just means holiness of life and character, the quality or state of being holy or sacred. And to be holy means to be set apart as special for special use. So when we say something or someone is holy, what we're saying is that thing is set apart in a special way for holy purposes and holy use. And the scripture teaches that all of us are to be holy as He is holy. And the scripture teaches that life itself is holy. There is sanctity to it. It's set apart as special. Amen? The other word is sacred, entitled to reverence and respect. Other words that are similar are words like cherished and hallowed, revered, something that's solemn. You you know it when you see it. When you experience something that is sacred, you know it. There's an experience that goes along with it. It can Maybe you'll you'll be moved by goosebumps, right? Or just a a holy hush will come over you. I've been in times in my life when I recognize that the moment that I was in was sacred. It was special. I took, you know, kind of a, like with my eyes and my mind, I I took a, a flash of it. 
I took a picture of it in my mind. I remembered this is a sacred and holy moment. Well, the first point today, and I know you covered this last week. You're going to hear a lot of, you know, duplication this week. But the first thing I want to talk about is the life of the unborn and the preborn, that, it's, that it matters and it's sacred. All human life is sacred for this simple reason, because we are made in God's image. Now, if you believe that we're not made in God's image, if you believe there's not a God and that life is relative and that there are no real moral absolutes and there's no such thing as truth and your view of the world and of truth is relative, that everybody has what's true in their own eyes, true in their own mind, and if one thing could be true for you and not true for another, then I can see how you can justify taking a, a baby, a preborn child, and killing that child. I can see how that would happen. If life is not sacred and we're not made in God's image and likeness, then there's really no reason ultimately to treat a human life any different from any animal. And that is actually where ethicists have gone. Peter Singer, an ethicist years ago, uh, took it to that logical conclusion. If you're going to be honest and you're going to recognize that there's not really a God and there's no real special existence to being human, then it's very easy to say that a dog is a, a rat is a pig is a dog is a human. And that was a term that was used. A rat is a pig is a dog is a human. It's all the same. But if you believe that human beings are different, if you believe there is sanctity and sacredness to human life because we're made in the image of God, then that changes everything. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, then God said, let us, Trinity, let us, you notice that? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So we see right away that we're made in the image and likeness of God and God places us over animals. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see the full, listen to this, the full image of God is not male. The full image of God is male, female. And we see that in male and female, God expresses His attributes, His character, His nature. We see the fingerprint, the mark of God on human lives. Isaiah 44, 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Notice that, who formed you from the womb. Now, I understand biologically what happens when a child is conceived, but do you know that we now know through science that when you go into... Uh, the inside of a woman and you film the process of conception, at the moment that the sperm penetrates the egg and conception takes place, there's actually like a burst of light. Something really profound happens and there is this divine light that comes in. It's interesting when you read John 1.1, it says that Jesus, the Word, was the light that came into the world and gave life to every human. So there's something profound that happens in that moment of conception where the divine life of God is breathed upon that act and boom, a human being is formed. A unique human being with a unique conscience, with a unique awareness and personality and attributes and character. Somebody who will be unlike anybody that's ever been on planet earth before. That's profound. And then he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I in the Lord. Now, you know why God's saying that? He wants you to know, listen, this is my decision. This is my gig. Life-giving is my thing. 
I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by itself. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, some of the most beautiful poetry in the entire Bible, the Psalms or poems and songs that speak truth. And I want you to notice the poetry of Psalm 139, 13, as the psalmist writes, this is for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your, are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That is poetic language for being in the depths of the earth or a woman's womb. I'm being put together in there. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Isn't that profound? And so the thing that I'm wanting you to see here is that human life is given by God. And God's actually involved in the weaving of a life. And so to say, as human beings, to to step into the role of God, which is what we do. To say of God, listen, we have our own lives. We own ourselves. We're the masters of our own destiny. You can't tell us what to do. And that's how most of the people on this planet, and even many of us who claim that we're Christ followers, live. We often live our lives as though we're making our own independent decisions, and it's not really informed by the idea that God made us, God owns us, and that God gave His own Son, Jesus, and with His blood purchased us. We don't belong to ourselves. Peter tells us as much. We belong to God. We're, we're created to give Him honor and to give Him glory, to give Him pleasure, to make Him happy. That, did you know that the main reason you exist is to make God happy? I don't mean in a weird kind of way like He's a puppet master. I don't mean like that. I mean He created you in a unique way so that your gifts, your talents, your abilities, and all the things that make you, you, all of those things will praise Him. All of those things will give Him honor. Now, I want to show you a video. It's about a 10-minute long video. Um, But I I just want to say before I show the video that it has some very sensitive stuff in it. And uh, because we have children in the room, um, I didn't realize we'd have as many kids as we do. Because we have children in the room, it has some things in it that are pretty graphic. Um, Not not actual pictures, but but a story. There's a story going to be told, and you're going to hear that story. So I want to give you an opportunity, if you're a parent, we're going to bring the lights down in a minute and cue up this video. And as we do, if you're not comfortable with your child being here, that's fine. And um, you can step out for 10 minutes and then come back in if you'd like to. But we're going to show you a video, and we want you to pay close attention and to listen carefully. And here's what I want you to listen for. Are all of you familiar with the term redemption? Redemption is God's divine ability to take broken slaves, things that are owned by another, and to buy them back and to repair them and make them holy again. And this is the story of God taking someone who is a slave to their sin and redeeming their life, forgiving their life, and making it new. So at this point, let's cue up the video and go ahead and show it. I'm Emily Sawyer, and I've been attending Grace Harvest for about three and a half years now. I was raised Catholic, so I've always known that it was wrong. I've always believed very strongly that abortion is wrong. 
Um, when I was 18, a senior in high school, I was facing the decision of what I wanted to do with my life after school, and I was at church by myself, and it was the All Souls Feast Day right after Halloween, and I was praying, and the Lord spoke to me and said that he wanted me to do REACH, which was a youth music ministry that traveled the United States and Canada, and I was really excited that God was calling me specifically for that, so I devoted myself to that. I applied, interviewed, got accepted. Fast forward from November to April of the same year, of the senior year, anyway, um, I was running track, and I was doing really well, so I'd gotten a lot of offers for different colleges, and one specific college was looking at me for a full-ride scholarship. I was actually on the field warming up for an event when I got the phone call from Reach Ministries saying that they wanted me, they wanted me to come down, and I remember thinking at that time, I've got these things that the secular world wants me to do, like have a college degree, and I also had a boyfriend at that time, a serious boyfriend, and I rejected God's calling for me, and I chose to go to college instead. And I think that's where my life, it, where I opened the door for things to go not as God intended. Within a month, I became pregnant. I didn't know it till about two months later. And the timing of that has always struck me because it was about a week before I needed to have a physical with the doctor to be able to be approved to go to college and run. So. About a week before I needed to have my physical, my boyfriend and I found out that I was pregnant. We came here to Moses Lake and went to Crossroads to get a pregnancy um, confirmation. The whole interaction took about 10 minutes. She confirmed my pregnancy, gave me some pamphlets and resources, and I was actually really hopeful in that moment. I was filled with joy. As soon as my boyfriend and I walked out of the building, he grabbed everything from me and threw it away in a garbage can and said, there's only one choice. There's only one choice that we have in this situation. And I felt really overwhelmed. Um, having been raised Catholic, my mom always told me that if I became pregnant before I was married, that I would be disowned, that I would have no family left, that they would not want me. And I knew that to be reality because an aunt of mine had the same experience and my family completely shut her out. Um, so I was facing reality of losing my scholarship, losing my family. My boyfriend told me he wanted nothing to do with me or the baby if I chose to keep it. And so I scheduled the appointment, and it was two days later down in Yakima. I went to the clinic down there, and that whole experience is not something I think anyone can be prepared for. It's not something that's talked about. So we get to the clinic, I walk in, front desk, pay the $500 fee, and they open the security door to the waiting room, and I walk in there, and I was really surprised by how many women there were. There were at least 30 other women in the waiting room. I was last on the docket, so I sat there for a good five hours, waiting my turn, and as I was waiting, I was crying and filled with emotion and the other women there were laughing and joking and talking like it was just another day that they weren't about to walk in and do what we were all there to do. So I was the very last to go. 
and my boyfriend was with me. So I was feeling a little trapped, but then I went into the intake office and that's where they administer the ultrasound, find out how far along you are. I was just over eight weeks. They also do a psychological evaluation on you and I was told that I would not pass. I was not, they were not gonna allow me to have an abortion based on the way I answered the questions. So I panicked and I begged the lady to let me have this because I had no other choice in this matter. At least that's how I felt, even though I knew abortion was wrong. I felt I had no other choice. One thing that they don't tell you about in the clinic is the reality of what's about to happen. They don't tell you about the pain. It's probably the most painful experience that I've ever been through physically, and I've had multiple babies since then. Um, so I was at home or with my boyfriend at his house and I experienced the severe pain. They told me that I was gonna need to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom and that's when it happened. They didn't tell me what I was gonna see and that was that my baby was gonna be in the toilet. I saw my little baby in the early stages but the way they tell you is that there might be some debris. They minimize it to debris. When I saw my baby in the toilet, I was overwhelmed and I fished the baby out and I buried it under a rose bush in the backyard. And they don't, they don't tell you these specific kinds of things. After I had my abortion, I went to school I continued to run cross country and track and as the reality of what had happened started settling in, things started to go really wrong. Um, I became really depressed. I started drinking, smoking weed, which led to cocaine and other illicit drugs. I ended up quitting the team during the spring. and. On the year anniversary of my abortion, I attempted suicide. I felt like I had given up my baby's life. I felt like I was going to hell no matter what, and I felt like the reasons why I gave up my baby had all failed me. My boyfriend and I had broken up a week after the abortion. My family was no longer speaking to me because of it. I lost my scholarship. So all the reasons I had chosen over my baby were gone and so I decided that life was not worth living anymore and I'm still here God pulled me out of that he saved me for whatever reason in my walk I've talked to a lot of women and one of the things that we all share that have had abortions that have spoken out about it at least they have a broken background broken family no church community um, whether it was parental abuse or father abuse or lack of a father in general there's a lot of common threads through that and it, I think that is the fundamental absence and connection that we all share I think that women are lied to about that life would be better if they chose this because it's the easy way out I mean they're not told that it's the easy way out because it is definitely not it makes life so much more difficult I don't think that women believe as a whole that life is not sacred. I think that we all know, we all know inside that what we're doing, 
what the finality of it is, but we're told that it's okay because it's our choice and it's our body. We're not told of the damage it's going to do to our souls and hearts and the long-term effects. It's something that I don't think I will ever be over. I don't think it's someone, something that anyone can get over. I've known that God wants me to use this to help other women. I've known it for a really long time, but I didn't have a community that I felt safe to do that in until I came to Grace Harvest. And that's one thing that I'm so grateful for, to have this church, this church body. The background I came from, I was told I was going to hell, that there was nothing I could do to redeem myself. And I felt that way for a very long time. And um, it wasn't until really being here and, and being told about the grace of God and that it is without ends or bounds that I've really begun to heal from it. But it's still, I don't think it's something that anyone can ever truly heal from. There are things that will help and that is having a good church community. So I really do believe that if we not only walk and talk, but we actually do, that there are a lot of things that we can do personally to help other women that might be in trouble, might be facing these decisions. hard to know what to say after something like that, isn't it? Very moving and very powerful. <clears throat> Before I move on in, in my message, I just want you to know, uh, Emily's here this morning and, you know, she has obviously faced this. She's looked it right in the eyes and she's brought it to God and she's seen that Jesus' death on the cross paid for that, forgave that. Has cleansed that. She's forgiven and she's cleansed. She's right with God. I know a pastor for many, many years whose wife had an abortion at age 16 and never shared it with anyone, kept it quiet and did ministry for years and years and many, many years later had it locked in her heart as a secret, covered by shame and years and years later at a conference she went to, she felt like God said, it's time to bring it out. That's, that's terrible. That's poison inside of you. And she brought it out and God began to heal it. And the reason I'm saying that is because our strong stand for life includes the idea that we believe there's a Redeemer God. It includes the idea we're not taking this stand. We're taking this stand because culturally everything is against life. But we're taking the stand because we know that there are people, there are women and men, and men who have locked up a secret in their life, who have locked up something that they did years ago, something that they pushed or pressured or went into, and they've been locking that up, hiding it and keeping it a secret, thinking that somehow if I deny it's there, it's going to go away. And the only way you're ever going to really get it healed is when you confess it and get it out in the open and let God begin to deal with it. And we want you to know this is a safe community where you can do that. There are people here that you can talk to. There are people here that will pray with you. And nobody will say, you're going to hell, you're scum, 
you're not a part, get out of here. People will say, come on, let's, let's take this to the cross. But let's quit justifying it. Let's quit acting like it's not, you know, murder, like it's not legitimate. Let's quit pretending that it's something other than what it is, the murder of a child. And when we face that and we recognize it, we can say, Lord, I'm a murderer, but you forgive murderers. By the way, the Bible's full of murderers who are forgiven. Moses, for example, David, for example, and many others. Amen? I want to stop right here for a moment and pray. So let's pray together. Father, there are men and women in this room. I'm sure there's somebody in this room that today was a divine appointment for them. This message and, and uh, that video is probing and, and, and bringing things up that have been locked away in a secret place. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage, the humility, and you would banish fear from their life so they would be able to bring this thing to you and take it to the foot of the cross, the only place that we know it can be forgiven and cleansed and washed away. And I pray you would do that, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to transition and move on to the rest of this message because I have a few other thoughts for you. Um, and I want to go to the second point, and this was touched on last week, but I think it's really important, it's equally as important, and that is that the, the life of our aged people, our seniors, matters and is sacred. Amen? Leviticus 19.32 says this, it says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God I am the Lord. I love how Pastor Raul read that text last week and talked about the fact that a lot of times we cover the gray head now, right? And some of us have perfect heads where, where we're losing hair, so that's just to expose the beauty and the glory of a shining... Amen. But the reality is, is that this idea has been largely lost culturally. Watch TV. We love to mock old people. We've made a, an art of it. We tell old people jokes. We laugh and mock, and we don't understand that in the eyes of God, that's a terrible offense. Because the aged have lived longer than we have. They know a lot more about life. Oh, yeah, they may not be up to date on the newest technology. They not, may not be down with what's trending in pop culture. But they can tell you about life. They can tell you about hard work. They can tell you about suffering. They can tell you about grief and how to walk through it. They can tell you about a work ethic and a lot of other things. Unfortunately, we have decided that we're going to start over. We're not going to ride on the back of the collective wisdom, and we're not going to ride on the shoulders of those that have gone before us and, and therefore be launched Further down the road, instead, we're going to reject what they have to say so many times, and we're going to start over because we got this baby. And in so doing, every generation just repeats the same old stupid mistakes, and we never really get any further down the road. The New American Commentary says this, respect for the elderly is essential for maintaining a decent society. So failure to respect and care for the aged indicates a given culture is about to collapse. 
The New American Bible commentary says this, respect for the elderly is characteristic of the Old Testament's law's concern for categories of people who could be vulnerable to poor treatment by society. Examples like children, the immigrant or alien, the disabled and the homeless, widows and orphans. A society which loses any respect for God quickly loses that deep and sacred respect for human life that protects those such as the unborn, the very young and the very old who are otherwise expendable. See, this is what we do in our society. We often judge things based upon merit. Oftentimes, we're a meritocracy. And in our eyes, merit means cool, cutting edge, up to date on what's going on. And if you don't fit those categories, you're discarded. We move you to the margin. We put you somewhere else where we don't have to deal with you. And in so doing, we actually curse our culture. The Bible reader's companion says this, respect for older adults is emphasized in this and other Bible passages. 60 was generally the point at which a person was thought to enter old age in the Bible. Older men served together as community elders. In the ideal vision of community life in the Pentateuch, these elders had great responsibility for maintaining the community's commitment to God. It was assumed that experience, listen to this, it was assumed that experience had given them wisdom. And the story of Rehoboam's refusal to listen to the older men's advice drives home the point that it is perilous to ignore an older person's advice. A similar attitude is reflected in the New Testament. <clears throat> There's this, testament, this story in the Old Testament where Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was about to become king. He, he came into his kingship and he was deciding what to do and Solomon had overtaxed the people and they were weighed down with taxes. And he was trying to decide, what do I do with this tax burden that's been put upon the nation? So he had the older men come in, the elders of the community come in, and he sat down and he said, what should I do? And they said, you need to relieve the people of the tax burden. Take some of the taxes off them. Help them out. Let people get on their feet. If you do that, loyalty will come from the nation and they won't be divided and they'll follow you wholeheartedly. He said, thank you. Okay, go away, and I'll make my decision in a few days. And then he called in all of his young buddies. He called in all the young men, and he said, what should we do? And the young guys said, tell them that if they think Solomon's burden was heavy, your burden, his burden will be like putting a finger on them compared to what you're going to do. You're going to tax them more than ever. We got stuff to do, baby. And he rejected the old men's advice, and he took the young men's advice, and the nation divided and split because of it, and it went into two kingdoms. And what we see there is a cautionary tale. We need to listen to what those who have gone before us have to say, amen? Isaiah 3.5 says, And the people will oppress one another, speaking of a time when the nation will begin to crumble and fall, and the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. And insolent means to show a rude and arrogant lack of respect. That's what will happen in the society as it collapses. And that takes me to my third point, and this is my last point, the life of the poor, the oppressed, and the disabled matters and is sacred. Amen? Psalm 41, 1 through 3, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. 
in his illness, you restore him to full health. Wow. C.S. Lewis said this about charity, about giving. He said, charity, that is giving to the poor, is an essential part of Christian morality. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. What we do is we become judge and jury and executioner with people. We see the panhandler, we see the person on the corner, we see the person walking down the street and they're, they're tweaking on meth and we see people looking for help and we decide right then and there. They're not worthy. They're not worth it. They're just going to use it for drugs. They're just going to use it for alcohol. We make the determination. We know their future. We step suddenly into the place of God and we're prescient and we can tell what they're going to do. And we think that somehow when Jesus was speaking about the poor and when people in the Bible were talking about the poor, these were poor people who had it together. We think they were talking about poor people who were always moral and good, who didn't drink to excess or engage in foolish behavior. We think that somehow these were the morally right poor. They just fell on hard times. And because of that, and, and, and if they could work, they would. And so... We, we somehow, in our mind, we think, well, Jesus is talking about a different kind of poor. But actually, one of the things that strikes you when you read the Bible is there's not a lot of conditions put on how and who you should help and when. It just seems like, you know, if somebody's in need, help them. Now, I'm not advocating you go out and give everybody cash. I'm not saying that. If they need a meal, give them a meal. If they need a blanket, give them a blanket. If you can help with, with you know, lodging, give them lo- Whatever. But here's what the Bible warns us about, hardening our hearts to the need of the poor, turning away. You know, you're driving down the road, I'm not even going to look at them. If I catch their eyes, they're going to come right to my window and they're going to put their hand out. I'm just going to look away and I'm going to pretend like they're not there. Watch out. The heart is beginning the process of hardening. Is this talking to anybody? Psalm 82, 3 and 4, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Oh, boy, I'm almost out of time. I have one more text of Scripture I want to read to you, a little story to illustrate this, and we're going to close with Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And I I just want you to listen. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to listen. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story of Jesus and his interaction with a blind man. I just want you to take it in, absorb it, okay? Here's the story. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. Shut up, blind man. Shut up, beggar. Jesus is putting on a healing show, and you're disturbing the peace. That's, in effect, what they were saying. And all you have to do is think for a moment. At that moment, he was a lesser human in the eyes of the crowd. But he cried out all the more. I love that. Oh, yeah? You go ahead and put me down. I know I'm about to have an encounter with Jesus. Don't you shut me up. 
And he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, notice the fickleness of the crowd, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And that's how we are, isn't it? Suddenly Jesus legitimized him. Jesus noticed him, now we notice him. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, just to illustrate what we've been talking about today, this blind man would have been cast aside by his society because they would have seen his blindness as a judgment from God for some kind of sin. And we do the same thing. We, we, we cloak it a little bit differently. We say, you know, they made, they, they, they made their bed, they need to sleep in it. They've screwed their life up, now they need to experience the pain of it. They're already experiencing tremendous pain, but we're, we're going to kind of help them experience more, right? And so in that society, if a person was blind or sick or things weren't going well in their life, it was because they lacked faith or they'd done something offensive to God. If a person had leprosy, they were considered to be the ultimate rebel and rejected by God himself. So the, the picture is in this culture with Bartimaeus, he's blind because he deserved it. He did something to deserve it. Therefore, God's judging him. Therefore, tell him to shut up. He's raining on our parade. When Jesus valued him and acknowledged him, the crowd suddenly changed their approach, told him to take heart because Jesus cares about those who feel like society despises them. He loves you. He values you. All of us in this room, I want to tell you, the people out there that we look at and we make judgments about, they are the masterpiece of God. Human beings, just because they're human, are masterpieces of God. Valued by God, made in the image and likeness of God, marked by God. Amen? That is reason alone to value people. Lee Eklov, in a sermon, The Blessed Limp, shares this story. He says, R.C. Sproul shares the story of a college student he once taught who had cerebral palsy. You know what that looks like, difficult movements, garbled speech. But this student was really smart, very bright and capable. And Sproul writes, one day he came, this student came to him very troubled with a problem, and he asked Pastor Sproul to pray for him. In the course of the prayer, he said he said something routine with words like, oh God, please help this man as he wrestles with this problem in his life. When I opened my eyes, the student was quietly weeping. I asked him what was wrong, and he stammered his reply, you called me a man. No one has ever called me a man before. He was weeping because he was called a man. Human life is valuable. It's sacred. Amen? And I hope that's what we catch and see. That's the beauty of the gospel. Think about this. The gospel, what we call the gospel, the good news, is that God became a man. If that doesn't once and for all settle the value of humanity, I don't know what does. God, who is ineffable spirit, who is beyond being contained, without borders, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all, all everywhere present. That God locked himself in a body, 
God in a bod and came down here into our world and became one of us to tell us once and for all time, human beings are valuable. And then he died on a Roman cross so we could be forgiven and loved. And he rose from the dead to show he was the son of God. And by putting faith in him, we can be forgiven and be renewed and begin to live as he designed us to live in the beginning. That's the beauty of the gospel. Why don't you stand with me?